Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Elizabeth Ricker is a sought-after neurohacking expert across Silicon Valley venture capital firms, technology startups, and schools. Elizabeth received her undergrad degree in brain and cognitive sciences from MIT and her graduate degree in mind, brain, and education from Harvard. In college, she worked in the neuroscience lab of a Nobel Prize winner, and today she's here to chat about her new book titled Smarter Tomorrow, how 15 minutes of neurohacking can help you work better, think faster, and get more done. Elizabeth, welcome. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. So you start your book, Smarter Tomorrow. I thought this was so interesting, talking about the self-help industry. It's an industry in the billions. I've read a ton of self-help books. I'm sure our listeners have read a ton of self-help books. But does it really help? Does self-help really help? And I think it's interesting that you prefer the term scientific self-help. So can you walk us through the difference between self-help and scientific self-help and tell us, does self-help really self-help? Yeah. So it's a funny distinction. And I think it's worth kind of pulling back a little bit about how I'm thinking about self-help versus scientific self-help. So first off, there's a lot in common between the two, right? So self-help, it seems like, at least to me, um, to be about self-empowerment, about kind of authoring your own life story. It's like this beautiful way for you to truly take charge of your own health or future or whatever. And so that is certainly core to both. But where I see scientific self-help departing from sort of perhaps the mainstream or traditional self-help area is in twofold. So one is a focus on measurement and accountability, and two is personalization. So I'll start with personalization. The, The main challenge I I think that people can potentially run into with self-help is if there is this authority figure who is saying there is a a method or a routine or a program or an approach that is the right way to do things or sort of is the guru wisdom that you must follow and adhere to, that may very well work for that person. But the more we learn from both neuroscience and from other um, scientific fields is that individual differences are not trivial. So even if you look at something like brain wiring, so how much your brain changes over the course of even a year, there's a whole field called connectomics where you're using various brain imaging um, technologies to look at the changes in your brain. So how different parts of your brain are wiring to each other, sort of rewiring, unwiring, rewiring again. And those kinds of changes, you just take one person and they can change 10% over the course of a year, that wiring. So those individual differences can mean that there are tremendous, there's a huge need for personalization. So basically what I see as being necessary for scientific self-help is it's not just that you want to base your recommendations on science, because there's a lot of self-help that I think is based on science, but it goes a step further. It says, if you really want to make this work for yourself, you want to embrace the scientific method for yourself. So that actually means you run self-experiments. And that's a weird term to a lot of people. And so I spent a lot of time in the book talking about what is a self-experiment? What is self-tracking? How do you actually, how do you go about being scientific on yourself? Um, So I'm not trying to say that self-help doesn't work or that these people are just spewing lies, or I'm not trying to disparage the self-help industry. (laughs) Definitely not. I think the overall goal and the philosophy is absolutely the same. We're all trying to do the same thing, but it's a question of how do you get there? And I, my goal with sort of 
introducing this concept or proposing this concept of scientific self-help is saying, let's get really curious. Let's get really skeptical. Let's get really critical and actually take this approach where we turn ourselves into human guinea pigs and we take charge of answering the question of, does this work for me? Not does this work for everybody else? Not does this work in sort of some philosophical sense, but does it work for me? And you can actually answer that question if you follow technically rigorous scientific self-help approach. And it, it can be in as little as 15 minutes a day. So that's what I talk about a lot in the book. What led to your passion for scientific self-help and ultimately neurohacking, which you know, put together in the book? So what, what's behind your passion? Yeah, I think it was a long time coming. There was a lot of parts that, so I guess, well, I'll take your question apart in a few different ways. So one is like, where did the scientific part come? I grew up basically in a family of scientists. And so I was sort of infused with the, the love of the scientific method from a very, very early age. But at the same time, I also became fascinated with the brain and with neuroscience and with this idea of being able to change yourself and take charge of your own path at a pretty early age because I didn't learn to read until I was eight years old, which was pretty late. And so I ended up struggling quite a bit and having to sort of define my own path. And I think I learned that, at least for me, the sort of one-size-fits-all strategy doesn't necessarily work for every kid. And so I had to, I had to sort of combine these worlds of the scientific approach and figuring out what works best for you. And I think it wasn't until like even after I graduated from MIT that I, I was going through lots and lots of different types of research. And I actually came across the fact that a lot of Nobel Prize winners used self-experimentation themselves. And so I was like, okay, this may actually be a way to bring these two worlds together. And that's how I started to come across the idea of, well, what if we could combine neuroscience with self-experimentation? And then I thought this, this would be a very cool um, and hopefully empowering message to share with more people. So for a parent of, uh, of a girl in pre-K, I can't help but just pause on the fact that you just said you didn't start to read until age eight, yet you yeah. graduated <laughs> from MIT, one of the best schools in the country. So can we just talk about that for a moment? <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, I, I would say that it was a long journey. <laughs> um, so a bit of like, yeah, so I guess kind of what was going on there was I was my childhood nickname was the beast. So I was a bit of a rascal. I was a handful. And I very much had a mind of my own. And so just being told that you're supposed to learn how to read and everyone else is learning how to read wasn't necessarily going to persuade me. So I think part of why I didn't learn to read until I was older was because I was stubbornly refusing to do what I was told. So that was sort of some parent's nightmare, but maybe just also an inkling of things to come of sort of being someone who likes to to go to her own go to her own beat. But I think more importantly and probably more like generalizably for for parents out there who, who might be thinking, "Oh my god, what if my child doesn't learn to read until they're 8 years old?" Where I really lucked out was that even though the the mainstream classroom didn't really work for me for whatever reason, I was not interested in in learning the letters and the the approach the way that my teacher was trying to get across to me. My my school did end up sending me to this reading tutor that they actually happened to have on staff, and I just lucked out. So basically, I ended up with this tutor who was just incredibly talented, and so she took me from being pretty much fully illiterate. <laughs> like I was really one of the worst students in my class to being at grade level or above within, I think it was by the end of the school year. So it wow. was on the order of months. So she just, I mean, 
she was kind of a miracle worker. So that was very helpful from a reading perspective, but it was also, if you, you may be familiar with this, listeners may be familiar with this, there's a pretty strong cost that you pay for not being a strong reader. The longer you go in school, at least in the US, not being a fast and sort of accurate reader, the larger the sort of penalty you pay. And so basically for kids who were as behind as I was, had I not gotten that reading tutor at the right time, I was on the trajectory to basically drop out of high school, right? So that, yeah, so sort of statistically, I actually came across that research when I was in grad school at Harvard later. And I was like, oh, I really got lucky, didn't I? (laughs) So, So yeah, there's certain age ranges where you're particularly vulnerable. So I think the thing that was, you know, that's left an impact on me with that experience was I got really lucky and it's not really sort of fair that that happened. Right. Like I'm obviously grateful that it happened, but that's not that doesn't scale. Right. You can't expect every kid who struggles or who is not a very good fit for their classroom to be paired up with this amazing miracle worker tutor. (laughs) So so that was part of what got me really interested in what was different about my brain, what's different about everyone's brain, what got me interested into neuroscience. And so I ended up talking my way into a neuroscience lab as a teenager. And this professor took a chance on me and let me work in her lab. And then she wrote me a recommendation for college. And that's a big, probably a big part of how I ended up at MIT. Wow. And so, where, where did you um, grow up? Where did you go to high school where they had that? Well, no, that was not part of the high school. Got I it. grew up in Cambridge, but I went to a boarding school. And then I lived, in, I mean, Cambridge, Boston, there's lots of universities around. So that was another way in which I was very lucky. I probably emailed over a dozen maybe 20. I don't even know how. I emailed a lot of professors and got a lot of no's, but then one did actually respond to my email. Um, But obviously, if you live in a tiny town with no university, that's not an option. So again, very lucky. And so what I started to focus on when I got a chance to do research during undergrad and then after that too, was what are technologies that could really scale and what are the ways in which we can understand how the brain works so that more people who don't happen to win some sort of weird school lottery of having a reading tutor is just awesome. How do, how can like a large percentage of the population get access to at least having a chance at a, at a better version of their brain? Sure. So as we're talking about education, I think education is rapidly changing. There's something I've discussed with my wife, Colleen, what's college even going to look like when our daughter who is currently four, you know, going to be considering or not considering college? Yeah. And what we, the standardized testing, there are lots of, again, education is changing rapidly. And so it leads me to my next question, something you talk about in the book I thought was really interesting. You talk about the new EQ and Mm -hmm. the new IQ. And I read that, I'm like, huh, this is interesting because the world is changing and it's like what we, so, so let's stop there and pause. Can you talk about the new EQ and the new IQ? Sure. Yeah. So these are kind of pet terms for terms that neuroscientists use a lot in the research. So I'll tell you the research name so you kind of know what I'm talking about. But I like those terms because they're sort of intuitively obvious. So for new IQ, what researchers are typically talking about there is executive function. So that's kind of, that includes things like working memory, which is the ability to hold a lot of different things in your mind at once and solve problems on the fly, as well as pay attention, make decisions. A lot of the things that make us think that we're particularly intelligent animals as compared to other animals, right? EQ is functionality or an ability that researchers call emotional self-regulation. 
And what you're talking about there is the ability to kind of recognize emotions, monitor them, and then also manage them and sort of take action based on a, a state that you're detecting. And so both of these are actually quite related. So even when you look at the areas of the brain that are active, say when you put someone in a scanner and you're looking at what the regions are are lighting up, both involve areas that we think of as related to self-control. They're both definitely linked. New IQ and new EQ would definitely be linked. And the link between them is sort of this ability to sort of kind of it's there's a self-awareness and there's a self-monitoring and a self-regulation tie between the two. And I think that actually goes to your question about what might be relevant for future generations about what kinds of mental abilities might be most prized in school, if that exists, in workplaces, <laughs> right? So I think it, it does tie into your, your larger question too, but I'll just pause there because I've been rambling for a while. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. And you mentioned self-regulation. You talk about in the book, you're, you're a huge fan of Viktor Frankl, as am I, yeah, I'm sure our listeners definitely. are as well. How, how do we Amazing get person. good? Yeah, how, how do we get good? at self-regulation? How do we work those muscles? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So in the main chapter um, on new EQ, I talk about some of the steps that the researchers have figured out that seem to be going on when people have strong self-regulation abilities or have strong new EQ. But there's a whole um, host of interventions that you can actually do to help you with this skill. And they basically range from things like a, a short bout of exercise to, to meditation, to even playing video games. And so the sort of rationale behind that is that there are a lot of underlying mental abilities that go into your emotional self-regulation or into your new EQ. And so by strengthening any one of those, it's, you're going to go play a sport. You're not, there's not a, a single muscle that you're going to work. You're going to work many muscles. And so when you go and you dynamically stress and engage all these relevant muscles for that sport, if you have weaknesses in any of those particular areas, they may come out, you may get injured, you might not perform as well. And so a big part of what you want to do at the beginning of any self-experimentation period is you do a baseline to figure out what your relative strengths and weaknesses are. And if you do discover that emotional self-regulation or your, what I call the new EQ is relatively weaker, or if you just want to improve it, then there are very particular interventions. And there's a very particular protocol that you can follow to work on that. So you reference a study in the book that said exercise in the morning boosted cognitive performance by 16% compared mm -hmm. to a boost of 4% in the afternoon. So it's like a four to one difference in the morning. So it sounds like morning is better when it comes to exercise under the lens of, of cognitive <laughs> performance. Is that, and I'm curious in them, what types of exercise are best? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a great, that's a wonderful question. So I want to probably take that one apart a little bit too. So what's going on there is that came from a meta-analysis a few years back where researchers did a wonderful job of pulling together findings from a variety of different studies, looked at over 2,000 research participants, and then this was sort of their on average finding. And I'm going to just pause there and say again, on average. So what that means is that you had a really large group of people who some of them are going to be similar to you, some of them are going to be different, and then you take you take what worked well for them versus for you. And so, yes, their finding was on average that there was this disparity between morning and evening. And part of why that's probably going on, again, on average in the population, is that there are these hormonal changes and arousal and alertness levels that are called, you have circadian rhythms, you have diurnal effects as well. And so what that means is you have different 
you have hormones that are sort of rising and falling over the course of a day. And you also have, you get sleepy at certain times of the day, right? So you're, those changes affect whether an intervention like exercise is going to significantly give you more or less bang for your buck based on what your baseline is at that exact moment. So it's a little complex to explain, but basically the idea is you're a dynamic creature. You're changing over the course of a day. And so if you uh, add exercise, which is a fixed intervention, it will have a different effect on you at different points. Now, big caveat here is I know I keep saying on average and I keep going back to this individual differences thing. And that's because it's really important. So for me, I'm actually kind of a night owl. And so some of these studies don't really apply as well to me personally and will not apply as much to other, to some listeners, because the notion of waking up and exercising uh, really hard first thing in the morning kind of sounds terrible to me, right? So (laughs) I think for some people that is exactly the right recipe And you discover this through self-experimentation. I'm also not saying that all night owls should not exercise first thing in the morning. There's probably a subset of people for whom that is fantastic, right? So again, what you do when you're trying to do a a scientific self-experimentation or a scientific self-help approach is you look at the research literature that that has findings like on average in this population, we found such and such. And then you say, okay, that's a very interesting finding. Now I'm going to go test it on myself. Now I'm going to go find out does this really work for me? And I'm going to take tests before and after, and I'm going to see whether it had a positive effect on me. With all that said, I'm curious, is there a specific type of exercise that the literature says may be better in terms of our cognitive performance? For example, is high intensity interval training better than the treadmill? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these are great. So I'm going to give you all the same caveats with any answer yes. that I give you, right? All the caveats, yeah. Right? It's all on average. It's all other people and you have to test it on yourself. But the answer is yes, there there have been uh, pretty interesting findings. So even for things like the the type of exercise, cycling versus running. So the finding was that if you look at immediate cognitive effects, cycling was a bit better than running. The boost that you get from cycling Again, on average, (laughs) you have to test this for yourself, right? What works best for you? But what they found in the study was that on average, cycling did work a bit better than running. And then another interesting one was actually resistance training and aerobic exercise. So this one was looking at, they typically found aerobic exercise was, was like a really nice boost. Resistance training by itself didn't help that much. But if you combine the two, then you had a nice immediate boost. Interesting. So building off of exercise, let's talk about lifestyle. So Mm -hmm. sleep, nutrition, how we take care of our mental health. Can you talk a little bit about those three and and what do we know in terms of cognitive performance and what we can do? Yeah. Yeah. So these are like the underpinning of all neurohacking. From my perspective, it's like you're imagining you're building a house or you, you have kind of like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs pyramid, right? The bottom layer Um, the foundation should be your lifestyle and your health. And the reason for that is that if you build anything on top of that, it's going to require that you have strong sleep habits, you have strong other health habits. So for instance, if you look at like interventions that are aimed at working memory using video, some of those training exercises can be quite intense. And so they might even make you pretty tired. And so part of what you're doing is the work continues while you're asleep. Well, if you're not sleeping, you're not going to get that benefit, right? It's like, these things have to work together. So there's there are just reams and reams, decades and decades of research underpinning the importance of sleep for learning and memory, for emotional self-control, 
all of the areas that I talk about in the book. As a new parent, I can certainly tell you firsthand experience that um, attempting to call up the same levels of creativity and of emotional self-control while incredibly sleep deprived was one of the hardest things I've done in my entire life. Like our brains are just not well designed for trying to do, trying to function on too little sleep. So yes. And then you also mentioned mental health. The pandemic has been affecting everyone, right? And so levels of depression, anxiety, these things have been skyrocketing when you look at sort of national statistics on incidence levels. And so there's very measurable results of depression in terms of even IQ. And this is not well known. It should be better known, but it is a very scary statistic. People can lose 10 to 20, even more IQ points from going into a depressive state. Now, thankfully, with, and this is quite well documented actually. So it is very scary. But what's the good news is that with successful um, treatment, people can get back to the same, you know, they can, they can recover cognitively. They can recover their mental performance. But one of the best possible things you can do is even if you're, you think you're doing fine, just go ahead and take a mental health screener once a year. It's just a good precautionary measure to keep yourself on the right track because it's a lot easier to prevent a problem than it is to have to deal with it once things start to get really tough. So yeah, just underscoring the importance of all of those lifestyle and health factors. And that's in the sort of 12-week sample program that I talk about in the book. The very first week is focused on figuring out your baseline, looking for potential areas that you need to debug your health and lifestyle. And sleep, exercise, nutrition, all of these things are top of that list. That's where you have to start. If we look at those four buckets, sleep, nutrition, exercise, and taking care of your mental health, I'm curious, yeah. what's had, what changes have you made in your own life that have had the biggest impact yeah, for you I, in those four buckets? Absolutely. Yeah. I've, I would say that I have had challenges in each of them, depending on different, what part of life we're talking about for nutrition, for example, i briefly flirted with being a vegetarian for for a year during college. I think I talked about this in the book. And I didn't also flirt with becoming a good cook at the same time. So unfortunately, I ended up extremely deficient in certain key vitamins that were, it was very avoidable. It's not that becoming a vegetarian means you have to be unhealthy. That's definitely not true. But, you know, there are common ones that people tend to fall into when they're, when they have restrictive diets. And so I ended up deficient in iron, B12, number of different areas. And then I ended up with brain fog, fatigue, just lowered mood, lowered energy. And this is quite common depending on what type of nutritional deficiency you're dealing with. So that's just one example. Thankfully, I had a great doctor who we ran blood tests. We figured out what was going on relatively quickly and I was able to to correct it. But a lot of people will go years not realizing that they have nutritional deficiencies and they're just kind of, they're just dragging along and they don't really fully know what's they don't know why. And so more people, there's actually a great app that I've used called Chronometer, and it actually tracks your micronutrients as you go along. So if you want to track your food, a lot of people track their macros, which is their the carbs, fats, proteins, but you also want to track your micronutrients so you can see whether there are particular vitamins and minerals that you're not getting. And that's a really nice app that, that does that. Well, specifically, I, I, don't, if, I don't get paid by them. No, no, I'll get, well, specifically, <laughs> if you're a vegetarian, you, you're not eating wild fish and you're not, you're mm. not getting those great omega-3s with that That's great EPA, DHA ratio as we think about cognition and brain health. You're just not getting right. that. Yeah, that's true. And you, there's some B vitamins that it can be harder to get as well. Yeah, that's true. I think what, one thing to keep in mind, though, with some of the health and lifestyle factors is that I, I think, again, it depends on what area you're looking at and what level of rigor 
of evidence you personally feel satisfied by. But for some of these things, I think there's very strong evidence that you don't want to fall below a certain level. You don't want to be deficient. But when people start going into trying to sort of hyper supplement and add really large amounts of X, Y, or Z pill to their diet, that's where you start to go into the area where I personally have not seen very strong scientific evidence. And then there's a second part, which is, at least in the US, we have a really serious problem with our regulation industry where a lot of vitamins and minerals, they're not regulated by the FDA. And so what you buy in that drugstore, and it says it has on the bottle uh, label, may not have in there. In fact, it might have some other weird things in there. So yeah, there's third-party watchdog organizations that help a little bit, but it's still, it's really it's the wild west. So you really, I tend to just try to get whatever I can out of my food and only supplement if I know for sure I'm really deficient in something. 100% agreed. And building off of that, you mentioned gurus either, you talked about taking it too far. If I look on Instagram or social media, there are so many biohackers and neurohackers touting so many different practices some exactly some look crazy but they could be incredible and others may just be crazy i'm curious from, <laughs> exactly. from, from your perspective yeah what's like the most overrated neurohack or biohack you've seen people touting right now where you're just like that science really isn't there it does not indicate yet Oh man, there's a lot. I don't know where to begin on that one. And I also don't, I want to be respectful and not just trash talk people. Um, you don't have to, no names, no but... names, just, just hack. No names, no names. Yeah, just, yeah. We, we, I... don't, we don't cancel people, we don't cancel people here or any of that. But right, like just, right, right. I'm just curious, like hack specifically where you're just like, eh, science is maybe a little developing, we'll say. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, okay. I guess I would say as a category, nootropics actually. And the reason why I say that is because there, so there are exceptions. And actually I have a whole chapter on nootropics in my book. And I think some of the ones where it's coming from a long tradition of say Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine, or there's strong traditions where at least the group of people where it originated from knew what they were doing. I think there's more hope with those. Still the really big caveat is that at least in the U.S., all of these things are not well regulated. So it doesn't really matter what the company says they're selling you. You just don't know that it is that. And the other problem is that because of the way that sort of mainstream neuroscience and medical research tends to work, most of the really strong, valid scientific studies that you can get are either conducted on clinical populations. So that means people who are quite sick or it's conducted on lab animals. So it's going to be mice, rats, monkeys. And if you're a relatively healthy adult you're probably going to be a bit different than both of those groups of people. Like you're probably not a mouse um, (laughs) and you're also probably not, you know, you might be, but you, you're probably going to be a bit different in a number of ways from someone who's really struggling with Alzheimer's or various other neurological disorders. So that's where I think it's really hard to say, Hey, there's this exciting new nootropics company and they have this amazing new compound and it's just going to you know, revolutionize your life. I look at those and they say they're science-based because they can mention some peer reviewed papers that are, using that compound on some other population that's really different from you. I look at it and I'm just like, well, I wouldn't try that. (laughs) I don't think that's safe. And I also don't think it's, you're comparing apples and oranges. So that's the industry where I would say there's a lot of problems really coming to any kind of conclusions. And there are things that you can certainly try. And I think they're within the range of like, they might not help that much, but they probably won't hurt you that much. And I mentioned what some of those are in the, in my chapter, but I think that's 
if I had to just point a finger at a sort of sub industry, that's probably one of them that I would sniff at. Agreed. And some and something you pointed out in the chapter, which I'm also a fan of, is you like the combo of coffee and L-theanine for focus. Yes, exactly. And I think it was 100 milligrams of coffee and milligrams. 100 to 100, yeah. 100, and, mm-hmm. and that works. And it's simple and mm-hmm. it's easy and there's science right. there versus like a nootropic that's like a laundry list of 30 things, 20 of them yeah. you've never heard of. Exactly. And you don't even know what amounts they're actually including. And and to sort of add to your the caffeine and L-theanine one, that's a particularly interesting one because again, if you go back to sort of humans interacting with compounds over, you know, a millennia, those two are ones that we're very familiar with, right? Like L-theanine is one of the compounds that tea tends to have in it. And so most cultures, at least in the semi-recent history of humans on this earth, have had some version of tea that they use as a core part of their culture. And so it's something that we we sort of understand that as a compound relatively well. I mean, there's still a lot of research to be done, but it's it doesn't seem to be as, say, harmful as some of the things that people are playing with that are only 10 years old or 15 years old as a chemical compound. Taking a step back, there's the why. Why do we want to neurohack, biohack? Why do we want to improve our cognition? And you, I'll segue to your life score. So Can you talk about life scoring? I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this kind of came about because I had been doing this, this very particular type of self-tracking since like 2011. And it was, I was looking at my say to do ratio. So this was basically the ratio between things that I said I was going to do versus things that I actually ended up doing. And it's, it's related to productivity, but it's also sort of related to personal integrity. Like how much did I trust myself over time? to really get things done. And so I, I was tracking that for a while and I started to realize that there was something off about my productivity levels. And it was it was basically that there were periods, I would do this thing where once a year I would make sort of New Year's resolutions and then I'd have check-ins with myself every quarter. I had an accountability buddy. We would kind of do this thing. And then there was this weird disconnect between when I was theoretically doing well where my say-to-do ratios would be good, my scores would be good, I was being productive, but I didn't necessarily feel that good. And I think this is something that happens to a lot of people where they they work really hard and they try to go after a goal and they achieve it. And then they get there and they're like, this doesn't feel as good as I expected it to. <laughs> like, what's going on here? And so I started to take a step back and I started to think, hey, maybe I'm not focusing on the right things. So I got very curious about positive psychology and humanistic psychology and sort of looking into other areas where people think about these sort of big picture questions a little bit more. And it sounds like you're a fan of Viktor Frankl. So that's an older school sort of humanist psychologist and existential psychologist. And really like this question of, okay, we can run around and check off boxes, but are we going after the right things? So what I ended up coming up with was I wanted to have a very simple uh, test that I could take every pick your time frame. I tended to do it a few times a quarter and just make sure that I was on the right path with respect to a bunch of areas that I care about. So it was health, it was family, it was a sense of spirituality, it was my finances, it was my physical environment, my my home, and then also my career. So I picked a, a set of different areas that were also influenced by like executive function and life coaching people to sort of, they had some good ideas too. So I was kind of cribbing from various literatures, I guess. Um, and, and then I started to keep tabs on that. And so I tracked it over time. And then I looked at my say to do ratios and my life satisfaction scores. And then I, my goal was to sort of have them be aligned. Cause if you have them aligned, then you have a sense of you're 
aiming for the right things and you're actually getting them done. And that seems like a recipe for a good life. I, I know you, you go deeper in the book, but could you maybe provide an example for the audience of just pick one of the categories, maybe health of like an example for everyone? Yeah. So, so for example, let's say you have an idealized version of what your home should look like, right? You could set that as a 10 for yourself. So if you had like absolutely your dream home, <laughs> right? Or your personal environment, right? Let's say your maybe your desk is what you care most about. And then, so 10 would be absolutely ideal. One would be kind of hellish. You don't have any personal space of your own. And then five would be sort of in between. So what you do is you just track yourself on a date, on a, on a 24 hour basis or a one month basis or a one week basis. There's various time scales that you can use. So essentially put the goal out there, see if you accomplish it or what, and then ask yourself the question, how do I feel? Was this even the right goal? And, exactly. And it's this introspective process. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it all goes back to the, the overall philosophy of self-experimentation is you start with a baseline, you ask, where am I on this thing that I've indicated as being important to my, to myself? And then you find some intervention that you think will help. So if it's, let's take your desk, for example, let's say I'm intermittently a huge mess, right? So my desk is periodically looks like a, like a snowstorm has gone through it. So what would be the intervention? Well, maybe it's that I'm going to read a book by an organization guru and I'm going to try out their techniques. That would be the test, right? That would be the intervention. And then I'm going to set a particular amount of time each day that I'm going to do it. And then I'm going to try that for a few weeks. And then I'm going to look again at my desk and I'm going to say, all right, where is it relative to where I want it to be? Did this intervention work for me or not? If it didn't, then I'm going to try a new intervention and then I'm going to test again and then keep trying until I find an intervention that really works for me. So suffice to say, you have a growth mindset and something, yeah. <laughs> and, and, something and you talk about in the book, you reference Carol Dweck. Can you talk about growth mindset versus fixed mindset? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so obviously she's written a whole book on this topic. Many people have written books on this topic. I really just sort of touch on it briefly, but the core idea there is that there is, there's an approach to effort and to achievement that can be a bit stymieing for you. And there's another approach that can really encourage you to um, keep trying even when uh, you encounter challenges. And so one is a growth mindset, one is a fixed mindset. So the classic thing is there's two sets of kids. They're both trying to do, they're both trying to tackle a set of math problems. And one group is basically told, oh, you're so smart. And then they feel like they have to keep looking smart, but then they're given a, a set of hard math problems. And then they get confused because they're like, oh, wait, if being smart means that things come easily to me, I shouldn't work too hard on these hard math problems. <laughs> And so then ironically, they don't actually end up doing as well on those math problems, right? This is just, this is a version of a research study that was conducted, right? And then another group is not rewarded for being smart. They're not told, oh, you're so smart. They're said, oh, you worked so hard. They think more about effort. And so in that group, they get, they tend to actually persevere when challenges get hard and they actually end up doing better on challenging tasks. So really Growth mindset versus fixed mindset end up being pretty predictive of whether or not you can tackle successfully pretty challenging tasks as opposed to just kind of clamming up a bit and then not uh, being able to proceed very well. Got it. Something that's worked well for me, I'm not alone, is habit stacking. There are some days where my habits just get me through the day. But I think the challenge people have is 
making habits stick. So my question to you, how, how do we do a better job of making habits stick? Yeah, that's such a huge one. And it's also one where I I thought when I was first starting the book, I was like, I'm going to be trying to get people to do neurohacking. That's going to be a new thing for them. How do I get them to do this? (laughs) Like it's a totally new habit. So there's really just, I mean, again, there are so many books that have been written about this topic and it's such a huge and, and beautiful and complex topic. But there were three techniques that I talk about in the book and they're very research backed. The first is make an implementation plan. The second is stack your habits, which you just talked about. And the third is what I call or what I think of uh, as flexibility and compassion. So what I mean by make an implementation plan is you figure out where, when, how, and what you need in order to do that new thing that you're planning to do in order to make a habit. So if it's neurohacking, then it's where am I going to do my neurohacking? What time of day am I going to do it? What tools do I need? You make a whole plan before you you begin. And then if you have figured all that stuff out, all the sort of logistical stuff, weirdly enough, the research shows in a variety of different areas, everything from education, this has been found even on political campaigns, they found that people are more likely to go vote if they make an implementation plan. It works really well. So that's the first one, make an implementation plan. As you said, stack your habits so you can you know, pick a keystone habit, say like, let's say you're really good at always brushing your teeth first thing in the morning. You can... Uh, Add your new habit that you want to start in right after you've compl- you, you've done your your toothbrushing. So that's called stacking because you're taking the old habit that you've already got down pat, and then you're stacking your new one on top of it. And then the last one is flexibility and compassion. This is actually one of my favorites. It's there was a study done where they looked at a no excuses group, a sort of easy group, and a second chance group, and all of them were supposed to do these really boring tasks. And at the end of the study, they wanted to see who was able to get more of them done. And the no excuses group was told they would only be rewarded if they got, every time they got the the task done, the easy group had lower standards for what they were expected to get done. And so the researchers wanted to see, did they get, did they get it? What percentage of the tasks did they get done? And then there was a final group that had, it was, they were given a high standard of expectation of the number of tasks that they had to get done each day. But they were also given this sort of second chance, which was that if they screwed up and they didn't get it done, then they could get a second chance at it. And so interestingly, what would be your guess of, well, you've read the book, so <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't ask you this, but maybe like, okay, if you're listening to the, the podcast, maybe take a second and predict which group do you think would end up doing the best? Would it be the no excuses group, the easy group, or the second chances group? So I'm going to pause for a second. Okay, hopefully you've done your prediction. And the answer is it was actually the second chances group. So basically having a bit of flexibility around when exactly you're going to do your task. If you're not able to do it, something gets up in the way. Are you able to do it later? That actually ended up working better. And this is really, it's interesting when you look at like diets, for instance, because people often say, oh, I'm just going to cheat today. I'll start again on Monday. It's no big deal. Actually, the approach that seems to work better in research is you forgive yourself for screwing up and you remove that level of, of blame and guilt and shame. And then you say, okay, I'm going to start again now. And that actually leads to people sticking with new habits better, longer, um, and more successfully. So that's, yeah, those are the three things. Make an implementation plan, stack your habits, and flexibility and compassion. That's what I would recommend. 
I love that. And I'm so glad you talked about self-compassion. The example you just walked us through, I, I think is just, it, it speaks volumes, especially in our world, in the wellness world, yeah. where people are looking at Instagram and it's perfection and people yeah. are trying to lose weight and exactly. it doesn't, they slip and yeah. there's guilt and there's right. frustration and then it's over. And this is why... Yeah. New You're Year's like, I'll just give fail. up. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I'm just yeah. so glad. And there's a difference. I, I like that you pointed out of saying, oh, I'll start three, I'll start again three days from now or four days from yeah. now versus, all right, I, 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 I slipped. It's going to yeah. be okay. I'm going to start again now or tomorrow. And I think that's so critical. You get back on the horse. Exactly. And forgive yourself a little bit because we're yes. human and we make mistakes. But the beautiful thing about a humans is that we do screw up, but we, we have the ability to sort of self-redeem. So. Something you do so well in the book is you provide all these practical steps. You walk us through various scenarios. And I'm going to touch on one of them I thought was very interesting. You talk about the four steps of the neurohackers ladder, FSTR. Mm. So can you briefly walk us through the four steps of the neurohackers ladder? Sure. Yeah. So the scenario I paint there is the sort of mythical idea that you're on one side of a fence and this side of the fence is where you are right now. And then the other side of the fence is this amazing dreamland where you have an upgraded version of your brain. And so the question is, how do you climb up that ladder and over and into that new world where you have an upgraded version of your brain? And the answer is you climb one rung of the ladder at a time. And so the first rung is F and that's for focus. The second ladder, and I'll describe what each of these steps are in a second. I just wanna tell you what the FSDR is. So F is for focus. S is for select, T is for train, and R is for reflect. And so now I'll explain what those words actually mean. So the focus is for basically picking a mental target, and it's focusing in on what aspect of your mental performance you actually want to improve. So in the book, I talk about four main mental areas. We've already talked about new IQ and new EQ. There's two other areas that I talk about as well. One is a kind of lump bucket of learning and memory. And the other is creativity. So those are four mental abilities that I have a lot of uh, sort of recipes for how to improve in the book. And there are many other mental abilities, honestly, that I don't talk about in the book that you could also potentially be working on. But this is way too overwhelming. You can't improve everything at, at once. Like I, I have a friend who's now a professor at Stanford and we were joking about how like there's so many different interventions that you could possibly do. And so she jokes about like what she calls the kitchen sink approach, which can work actually. I mean, you, but the, the problem with just doing a bunch of different interventions all at once is you don't know what helped, right? You don't know what caused what to actually improve. So what I recommend since I'm only uh, talking about 15 minutes a day for this stuff is just pick a single mental target that you're trying to improve and pick a main intervention that you're trying to work on, that you're trying to try out. And that's what you're going to do. So F is for focus is focus on a particular mental ability. So maybe it's creativity. Okay. So let's say it's creativity. So now we move to the next rung. Next rung is S is for select. So now you're going to pick an intervention. And I talk about seven research-backed interventions. There's a chapter for each one in the book. And so you can pick out of those seven or whatever the intervention is that you choose. And then you figure out what is the intervention protocol that you're going to follow. And so at the end of the book, I have 20 different protocols. They're 15-minute self-experiments. It's kind of like a cookbook. You have these recipes. And so it tells you exactly what you need to do each day and how you can actually run a proper scientific 
experiment and the randomization and the number of times you have to do it so you don't run into problems with statistical noise. And there's all kinds of technical things that you want to avoid gotchas of. And I don't want to bore you bore you with the details here, but the beauty is that it's the work is done for you. So if you just kind of follow the, the protocol, you're in pretty good shape. So let's say you pick one of these interventions for creativity, which is your, your focus area. And let's say you decided exercise is the thing you want to go with. So you want to test out whether taking a nice stroll outside or doing a hit exercise is going to be better for your creativity. So you pick a, a protocol that says, I'm going to work on this particular intervention. That's the intervention I'm going to pick is exercise. Now, the next rung of the ladder is training. So you start that training. So the, the first part of this is in the 12-week program, you have the first week where you're getting your baseline, you're picking out your focus area, you're picking out your intervention, and then you're seeing what your areas are that you want to actually work on. And now the next few weeks are actually doing the thing. So you, you run these experiments on yourself every single day. It just takes 15 minutes a day, but you have a particular thing that you're doing. And that's your training period. Now the final rung is R, which is for reflect. And at that point, you stop doing the intervention, you keep tracking yourself because now you're taking, now you're testing to see whether the thing actually had any effect on you. So part of how we, we understand whether something has worked is we remove the intervention and we're like, all right, well, are you better? <laughs> is it working? And so now the reflection phase is you look back at your data, you see where you are in your life, you take the tests again, and then you're like, all right, am I better than I was before? So that's what your focus, your selection, your training, and your reflection is. And hopefully all of this has worked beautifully for you, and you're over the ladder, and you're on to the brain-upgraded world on the other side of the fence, and you're good. But if you're not, then it's fine. You start again, and you do a new self-experiment, and you're back on the, the adventure begins again. I, I know it's hard to generalize, but is there one thing, one intervention that it's safe to say is probably going to be good? for anyone, regardless of age, gender, ability, you know, what's the one thing that everyone would probably benefit from? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, I mean, the, the easy answer is exercise. I mean, I think that's probably what most neuroscientists would tell you. And the reason why I actually think that's a pretty good answer is that a lot of these things, they take a little while for the effects to build up in your system. And the beauty of exercise is there's something called the feel-good effect, which is really fast. I mean, it happens almost um, safe. For instance, you do a 20-minute intervention of exercise. There are certain chemicals that will be released in your brain and in the rest of your body that just make you feel good. And so, yes, it's great to exercise over a long period of time, and you can get all the juicy benefits of like neurogenesis and all kinds of you know longer range neuroplasticity that happens. But just feeling good and having your mood improve is also quite good for various aspects of your mental performance. Mood is directly related to creativity, and it's directly related to emotional self-regulation. So those are big boosts. So yeah, I mean, it's an obvious answer, but Honestly, it's, it's cheap, it's easy. Exercise is a great one. And then the other ones, of course, I would say try those as well. But if you, if you have to pick just one, yeah, probably exercise. And so if we were to zero in on exercise, would it be high intensity interval training with a friend outdoors in nature, going up a hill, like an incline for a certain period of time? I'm just curious, like if we had to zero in on that, if you could pick like one. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a, it's a great question. And I think part of my goal with neurohacking was to be able to answer a slightly different question, which is, let's say you are about to go into a high intensity um, meeting, like a really important meeting, or you're about to have a really difficult conversation with a friend. Basically, I think that the end goal of neurohacking is that you should know enough about how your brain works in different circumstances 
that you can pick the right intervention for the right occasion. So the scenario you just painted where you're headed off on a high intensity hike with a friend outdoors, it sounds fantastic. And it sounds like a great way to spend a Saturday or a Sunday. But for a lot of us, we're just trying to get through the week and we're trying to Me you know, too. do the best that we can. <laughs> you too. Yeah, obviously. I mean, we're all in the same boat. I, I'm not trying to put you outside. <laughs> You're in your own like, you know, little walled island of like paradise. No, we're all in the same boat. So I think the answer is, yeah, there's a different intervention for each spot. That's a great one. Being outdoors, there's lots of good evidence there. Um, but I think, for instance, right before I went on this podcast with you, I did a bunch of really fast jumping jacks. And I know that works for me, because it gets me into the right state. And I have a lot of personal data to back that up, but that's not right for everyone, right? Like there, the, my husband is recovering from surgery right now on his hip from a weightlifting injury. Ooh. That would not be the right intervention for him, right? <laughs> so like it's, I think the goal of neurohacking is actually self-awareness and self-tracking and figuring out how to run tests on yourself so that even because, even though you're a different person than the next person, and even though you're a different person today than you were last year, you will be knowledgeable enough about these different tools that you can pick the right tool for the right occasion. So you mentioned differences. How are men and women different when it comes to neurohacking? Yeah, that's a great one. I think we could probably have a whole other book on that topic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for starters, even things like the preferred environment of men versus women. So there's a funny series of studies. I think one of them was titled like the thermostat wars and it's about temperature regulation. So if you've ever been in an office where there's a lot of men or there's a lot of women and you're part of a minority, what you will discover is that the thermostat tends to creep in one direction versus the other because one group of people thinks that the, that the air should be a particular number of degrees and the other... Th group thinks that the thermostat should be set somewhere else. So on average, women tend to perform best when the air temperature is uh, warmer. So say around 77, 75 to 77 degrees is one of the ones that has been found. And then for men, they tend to perform better when it's lower. So it's closer to like 72. Again, individual differences, of course, there's going to be people who want it hotter, who are men. And there's also, of course, not everyone is a man or a woman. There's sure. Like, a lot of range in terms of how you show up biologically. But yeah, those are some of the interesting findings. So what's funny is that uh, I actually remember like years back, I was working on a startup with some friends like right after undergrad and it was just a bunch of guys and me. And we were in this really cold old house just hacking away on our laptops and I was freezing and I could not think straight and they were happy as clams and I felt so uncomfortable and I, I felt a little outnumbered and I didn't want to say anything. But then after about a you know, a few days or a week, I noticed that my productivity, because I was tracking, I was even a self-tracker back then, I noticed my productivity was a lot lower and I started to think about it a little bit more. And this is a funny thing because there are a lot of people who don't realize that they are systematically putting themselves in environments where they cannot function at their best because they're not recognizing that there's some other group of people who is not necessarily doing it on purpose. They're not trying to be mean to you, but they're optimizing for their own optimal functioning. And it, obviously being really hot is also very bad. There's a lot of data from standardized test scores, both in this country and say in China, uh, around the world really, where kids um, in unair conditioned environments during heat waves, for instance, end up having significantly lower PSAT scores. There's a really high stakes exam in China where there were areas where they, they found that particular test center, all of the kids did much worse because it was during a heat wave. So your brain just can't function if it's outside of a particular temperature range. 
and it just doesn't function as well. So that's something to, to keep in mind. Wow. So in, in closing, I'm curious, what do you think is interesting right now in terms of science um, that's emerging? What do you think we're going to be talking about a year or two from now? What are you paying attention to that's on the cutting edge? Yeah. I mean, there's so many cool things that are happening with wearables and with apps and with sort of the ability to passively track mental performance data. I think the more of that that we can get, the better, because one of the big challenges with neurohacking is that say you've only got 15 minutes a day to do it, you want to make really good use of that time, right? You want the data that you're gathering to be accurate, to have been ideally passively collected because you don't want to spend your entire day writing notes on your, on yourself, right? Like it's our, our goal here is not to turn into sort of like spreadsheet monkeys. It's to actually improve our brains. So I think the more that these tools improve on the, the wearable side, the app side, on the sort of tracking even what's going on in your computer. There's some cool startups that are coming out. So there's like, this is like on the older side at this point, but there are things like using the the typing patterns on your phone and also on your laptop to detect what your mental state is and even potentially detect the beginnings of mental health challenges is very promising. And the former um, head of the National Mental Health Institute is in charge of one of the new startups that's working on that. So that's one area where I think just improved improved data is going to make us much, much better at this. And then the other thing that I'm looking forward to is hopefully the more people I can tell about neurohacking, maybe you'll tell people about it too, and scientific self-help more generally. I think that we can just really up-level our whole society if more of us get tuned to saying, hey, I can track my mental performance. I can run self-experiments on myself. I can shape my environment in such a way that it, it could be during the day at work or it could be at home with my family. I can make it so that I have access to a better version of my mental performance at any given time. And I can forgive myself when I screw up and I can get back on that horse um, and I can try a new self-experiment to, to keep getting better. So I think those are the two things. I think the more we improve the technology and the more people learn about self-experimentation, the better off we'll be. Agreed. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun.